for God to enter into that and experience that fragility, I think is just like, that's the gospel to me. To me, in some levels, too, that uh, the death of Christ in the midst of our bloody lives um, offers a unique and mysterious solidarity. And, and you know, you uh, echo the biblical authors who come up with love as the reason for mm -hmm. all of that. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate that. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones, and... Bill Bohr and I today will be conversing with Tony Jones about his new book, Did God Kill Jesus? Tony's an old friend of mine. We met in graduate school together at Princeton Seminary, and he's been a consistent conversation partner, friend, and co-laborer in kingdom work. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Tony Jones. I mean, it's interesting because it's a it's a pretty interdisciplinary book. I mean, you cover a lot of ground. So, what was like, what, what was one of the bigger challenges in writing a book like this? Well, I'll tell you one thing that's funny that you'll understand is that um, one of uh, a colleague from Princeton, whom I will not name, when I told him I was writing this book, he's like, "You can't write a book on the atonement. You're a practical theologian." <laughs> He's like, not, nobody, nobody will be, take it be seriously because you're, <laughs> yeah, because your PhD is not in systematics. Nobody will take you seriously. And I'm like, dude, no one cares in what sub-discipline my PhD is. It's, it's irrelevant. <laughs> um, yeah, it's funny that, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it's funny that he thinks people are going to walk into Barnes & Noble and be like, oh, what's the guy's subfield? Let me Google it. <laughs> Well, yeah, but I, but it also does. There's a, that is a mindset of in the academy. So it, it it is understandable why some of the critiques that you get from individual disciplines, you know, come from that kind of mindset. No doubt. If I were on a seminary faculty and I were teaching practical theology courses, and I I I announced to the you know in, in the faculty senate that I was coming out with a book on the atonement, I'm sure. Especially if it were an academic monograph, I'm sure people would, you know, my colleagues would be like, what? You don't get, you know, you can write a book on youth ministry. You don't get to write a book on the atonement. But in the actual real world, <laughs> uh, it's not like, it's not like that's an issue. So, you know, th this book was, every book I've written has been a, a journey of, of, of content that's been kind of field tested over time, even back to my books on youth ministry. And this book started, really started as a series of blog posts. It just seemed like something, I never really was hung up on a particular version of the atonement, but the more, you know, the older I got and the more I traveled around in Christian circles, the more I realized it was a real, it was just a real point that people tripped up on. They didn't quite know how to understand the cross. And there was this kind of big, like, um, you know, there was this like John Stott shadow over all of evangelicalism. And, but John Stott had, you know, this kind of gent, gentle version of penal substitution. Right. And then, but then when Piper and Driscoll and that posse came along and the neo-Calvinists, like they took that and it was not gentle anymore. So people started to get really like wigged out by it. Do you think and someone then, that is just British, like... 
in my experience, the British evangelicals just seem like they don't seem like they get hung up on some of the almost like it's almost like there wasn't like a fundamentalist modernist controversy or something. And so they're they just seem a little more mellow. Yeah. I mean, here's another funny example that led me to write the book is that when I, I would be talking to people and be like, oh, you know, C.S. Lewis didn't hold penal substitution. And, and people were like, what are you talking about? And I'd, you know, kind of talk talk about that opening or talk about the kind of climax of the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe and say, like, that's a totally different version of the atonement. Yeah, right. They were like, what? That's the, you know, <laughs> so yeah, I think you're right. I mean, there's some subtlety in there in the British position. And, you know, Stott was known for being a, a real a real gentleman. And um, and that comes through even in his writing. I mean, I, I endorse the 40th anniversary edition of the of the Cross of Christ. I mean, I think my my endorsement is like two down from John Piper's on the back cover when when in varsity. <laughs> That's such a great thing. Like I would put that on a T-shirt. My style I know, right? is so, down from John Piper's. So I blogged about it, um, and then I compiled all those blog posts and published an ebook straight to Amazon about it. That ebook sold like hotcakes. I mean, a buck ninety nine, but and it's fifteen thousand words, you know, so kind of more like a long essay. But people loved it, and so um, you know, at the time I signed the book contract. Driscoll was still in his pulpit. Piper hadn't retired, um, and it was and and I was I was selling this little ebook like crazy. So I think that kind of confluence of events got piqued the interest of Harper One to say, "Go ahead and write a full book about this." Do you think that's like the like you're kind of in a different? It's it's interesting. Just it's kind of a side issue, maybe, but it's like the new uh, development of authors and books, like. The old school, you, you write a book and then I'll oh, get a blog and promote the book. Here, you field test some ideas with actual people in conversation on a blog. It, it's, you know, co- it connects with people. You get a lot of feedback. Then you make an ebook and then, oh, okay, let's go to a, a normal published monograph. Yeah. I, that's, that's right. And I also, um, my day job these days is, editing a series of books called Theology for the People, in which I try to get more authors to write theology. And that's kind of what we call trade publishing ready, yeah. you know, that everybody can read. And uh, yeah, I, I work with a lot of authors who are, who are like, um, so I say, okay, so what are you going to do to help us market the book? Because that's how it works now. Yeah, They're like, well, I think I'm going to start blogging. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, it's too late. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, you You're, don't get to write a book and then start blogging in the three months that the book's in production, so that you'll have fourteen readers by the time the book comes out. Like you need to have, you need to be establishing a, a platform for your ideas and field testing this stuff. And yeah, you know, I I talk to authors about this too. Like just about every story that's in that book, for instance, like every kind of funny story or anecdote, you know, like that opening story. Um, about the, the, the youth evangelist guy at the winter retreat. Like I have told that story dozens of times in public venues. So I kind of know how the story works. I know kind of how, you know, I've, I've edited it. I've gotten it, I've gotten it pretty tight. You know, um, getting back to the book and, and just, uh, uh, to, to, uh, put myself in context, my academic background is church history, although, you know, late antiquity, 
intertestament mm-hmm. stuff. Um, I think two of the strengths of your book is one, exposing a more popular audience to the idea of multiple theories of the atonement. Mm-hmm. I think that's something uh, that, you know, some of us who study this forget that, gosh, people, you know, you know people tend to be whoever they've listened to. They, they're kind of in a particular yeah. uh, theologically. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing is, and, and you play with this idea of tying. I mean, I think from my perspective as a historian, uh, you know, the different theories of the atonement arise out of cultural context mm-hmm. as much. And I think in many ways, your book is very much like in that that tradition. It's rising out of a particular context that, you know, that is raising questions about penal substitutionary atonement. I think the other thing that you've kind of, that's interesting to me is in some levels, uh, does our theology of the atonement, uh, you talk about, you know, our, our theology of God and the theology of atonement being connected, but how much of it is our personality as well? I mean, in some levels, it means, you know, some people are naturally attracted to a God that that is a reflection of themselves as they hope they would be or or as part of their you know individual dysfunction. Yeah. How do you find that at play? Well, I I appreciate you saying that about the different versions. It was one of the things I went round and round with the publisher on because when it comes time to market a book, like you have to decide what's gonna go inside the inside flap of the dust jacket, you know. And of course I thought that my I thought that the big selling point of the book was my um kind of my hybrid evangelical slash process version of God uh, that's right at the end of the book. I thought that's the big payoff. Right. And the publisher's like, no, the big payoff of the book is multiple theories of the atonement because most people don't know that they get a choice. Yeah, I've um, actually had pastoral conversations with people that grew up mostly in pretty conservative slash fundamentalist churches and they'd ask me questions about some issue, and I'd say, well, I mean, there's kind of this view, there's this view, there's this view. And it's almost it, – it, it, it's tra- – what do you mean there's – we grew up, there was one view on every given issue. And so I do yeah. think that's almost therapeutic for a lot of people, just that they're not straight yet, just that there's room to kind of process things in different ways. Yeah, so I think, I think you're right that that's a big – probably a big selling point of the book for a lot of people. Um, and, and they did, of course, rise out of their cultural historical context, e- each of them. Um, the thing about personality is something I've definitely thought about and, you know, people have asked me about before. It's a little harder to pin down. I mean, it's hard to point to somebody and be like, you're such an angry, abusive person. That's why you like an angry, abusive God. It's a little unsubtle, you know, it's a, to drop to drop that on people, but um, I think it's I think it's very likely true that people are drawn to different theological frameworks that um, are you know more in keeping with their own personalities. Mm-hmm. I'll say that you know more broadly, I think one of the reasons that uh, penal substitution, or as I call it, you know, in the book, the payment model of the atonement, right, um, is has fallen on hard times is because we live at a time in the West, I think, where a lot of us, in the kind of enlightened West, I I wouldn't say this necessarily is true about people who are going to Donald Trump rallies, but for for the kind of people that the three of us hang out with and went to school with and that kind of thing, there's just a growing distaste 
for violence in general. Hmm. We live at a time, I think, in the post-Enlightenment West where a lot of people are just like, look, our, our culture is rife with violence. Our history is rife with violence. And we need to, these, you know, some, some these violent tendencies maybe have come out of some of these narratives that we tell about our, our origins and about our relationship with the divine. And people are uncomfortable with that, I think. And so they're looking around for different, um, you know, ways to articulate the, the Christian faith experience. And a lot of liberals, of course, um, and I spend a lot of time with liberals, although I don't really consider myself one, um, you know, they'll be talking about a nonviolent atonement. Like we can have a non, and I, and I've had, you know, I'll, I'll be releasing this fall, uh, some interviews I did with some top theologians. And some of them are like, one of them just said to me, like, Jesus didn't have to die. Like, that's just an accident of history. The, the, the salvation Jesus brings is in Jesus life and message. The death was just like, it's, I think she said it was a meaningless death. Which unfortunately has no support really in the new Testament. For sure. Not in Paul. I mean, well, like, I don't think you it's have to pretty much ditch Paul. You can and, maybe stick with Mark. <laughs> well, even know. even there, although, you know, he's not named, you know, no human names Jesus, the son of God and Mark until they watch him die. Yeah. You know, I think that's the whole Markian silence. You know, uh, <laughs> you know, there, there, it is interesting to me that, um, you know, the early church would never have done evangelism uh, like the opening story that you talked about. And I, I did youth work too. So it was, you know, there's, there's thousands of us that resonate with that. Story. Yeah. And, and, and uh, because it was considered mysteries, that's part of the mysteries. You know, the idea that what happened in the cross resurrection, you know, the two things combined is part of the, the divine mysteries and the non-initiated would never, never be exposed to that. Yeah. Because, the Christians themselves saw it as a mystery. It's something you have to almost embrace by faith as opposed mm. to, gosh, this makes sense that, oh, yeah, you know, God's going to kill his son who is innocent. You know, yeah. it, it does, it's not a rat. And in some levels, I mean, you have to create an internal reasonableness about it. And I think it's the, to me, the mystery of the cross, um, the more we explain it sometimes, the more we take out the mystery in it. And I think that's, to me, I think part of your latter chapters kind of points to that as well. You know, one of my f things I love in the book, go back to the beginning real fast, is that story of the Russian peasant mother <laughs> is really moving about letting her. And it was interesting. I, this probably happens it may not a lot. be true. But right. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Well, but no, really did, please, then, you guys, you got to read the footnote. I did read the footnote. It, I did read or, the footnote. Read the end note. If you haven't read the end note. You've I read, got the, to read end the end note about that story, and it's actually the, 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 your end note. What really happened is very powerful. It's right. it's a better it's a better well it's a it's a better punchline that they stayed alive because they kept together. Yeah, yeah. What's interesting is you go from that vignette, which is still evocative, even the the blood feeding, even though it's vampiric or whatever, and then the explanation to because you were saying everybody thought who wouldn't want to be loved like that sacrificially. Yeah, and then the whole thing about God can't look at you and the details right. of. Where it's like all of a sudden you have everybody in this moment where they understand God is sacrificial love. And then you turn it to this yeah. explanation that 
it's beyond gruesome. It's just strange. It's kind of well, it, you know. Yeah, I agree. The trouble with both the substitutionary view and and the ransom view is in 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 both ways it radically inhibits the power of God. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea of God right. and look on sin. Or my gosh, we got to trick the devil. <laughs> we have to in order to yeah. save. We yeah. got to you know, yeah. early church. Yeah, out. in in either well. On the on this on that story and the way that that guy used it and the way so many others who val- so highly value the the payment model of the atonement turn it is basically like Jesus loves you but God doesn't right so Jesus cuts it like Jesus opens his hands and you drink the blood from his hands but God won't even look at you so this is such for anybody who's a Trinitarian like this is such a deeply problematic. Right. deal. But then there's also, and I try to point this out in the book in, in ways, um, yeah, bo- in, both, um, in, in both of these objective versions of the atonement, the payment model and the, and the victory model, or, you know, ransom captive or whatever. In both of these, God is beholden. God is ultimately subservient to a larger framework. Right. right. So in penal substitution, it's this framework of justice. Right. Somebody has to pay for this. Like I can't possibly let these people into heaven right. unless somebody pays. So it really takes away God's agency. And in Ransom Captive, it's like um, it's it's a similar thing. What C.S. Lewis calls it the the deep deep mystery from something from the darkness of time or whatever. I've got the or phrase the in the book. Yeah. But you know, it's like there's this. It, it's also it's not justice exactly, but it's like this kind of medieval um, framework by which, oh, if somebody sins, somebody has to be right. like the sa- Satan has captured humanity. And you're right. like, well, if God's, <laughs> if, if God's omnipotent, God could just be like, like finger flick Satan away, you know, like it's, it's like God's caught in a cell phone contract that he can't get out of. Like, well, yeah, it's right? a two year thing. And I'm kind of, <laughs> my hands are bound. That's funny. Yeah. So you either know, of those, like yeah. really proud. Now, every version of the atonement has it, has is problematic has a kind of a problematic view of god at some point and right. like some of the people who are really committed to rene girard have come back at me um and been frustrated that you know i try to point out the weakness of girard's argument even which they can't believe girard there's any weakness in girard's argument but and it's a god weakness like it's a god problem he yep. has a god problem Right. No, I think, you know, I mean, uh, yeah, Rene Girard's insight are so powerful. Uh, we all have that problem. If we really like someone's idea, it's hard to say, but, yeah. you know, I, I think part of, for me, I, I love the different stories in, in the book. Uh, I, I particularly, I, I thought it was fun that, uh, in one of Jerry Falwell's last sermons, he, he, he calls you out by name. Mm-hmm. So my question is, how does it feel that you killed Jerry Falwell? <laughs> <laughs> my conscience Did is Tony clean. kill Jerry? DTK. So if what you're saying with some of the critiques of, say, substitution and some of the other models too, but primarily substitution is the problem is it seems like the way it's preached is something like Jesus died so that God could love us. Mm-hmm. As opposed to, it sounds like what you're saying is something more like, because God loved us, loves us, Jesus died. So it's an expression of God's love and empathy for humanity. Not, it's not that God, that God can't love us 
in, until Christ dies. It's it's actually the disposition of love for eternity that brings us to the moment of the cross. Right, and and not only that, I think probably some readers will you know wonder why does he spend so much time talking about sacrifice, sacrifice in the ancient world, sacrifice in the Old Testament, sacrifice in pop culture. You know, there's like Joe versus the volcano uh, right. references. Gilligan's Island references, stuff like that. I love Gilligan's Island. Were you Ginger or Marianne person? Girl? Marianne all the way. Yeah, me too. Yeah, for sure. I've, I I, fa- I, I kind of fancied myself the professor growing up. I like that. that. <laughs> I was more like Gilligan. Um, yeah, you still are more like yeah, Gilligan. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't just... In fact, it wouldn't be a bad shtick for your... Uh podcast here to have a get hit over the head with yes a, you could get a you could get a captain's hat, hat. I, I kind of metaphorically hit him over the head exactly on a regular. <laughs> um well it, the where i where i part from my liberal friends is that i'm i don't try to denude the jesus story of the violence that is the climax of the jesus story uh because in part i think it's such a powerful existential spiritual experience for people to, to see a crucifix and see Jesus on the cross. And also because theologically, like for Paul, there's nothing more important yeah. than Jesus' death, like the cross of Christ. It's why, it's why Stott titled his book that, like that is it for Paul. So as long as you take Paul seriously, you have to take the death of Jesus seriously. So then the mystery for me is why the violence, you know, and, and it goes back to the old youth ministry days of kids asking me like, well, could there have been another way? Couldn't, couldn't God have saved us without the, the bloody crucifixion? Like, why did it have to be this way? And so there's like a high level theological philosophical problem is, was this the only way? And then you kind of, you know, then, then you kind of start down the family tree and you either say, no, this was the only way. Or yes, God could have saved us in any way God wanted to. Why this way? Mm-hmm. Well, I go on that latter path. And so, okay, now the mystery is, why did God choose this way? And like, what, what is it about violence? What is it about sacrifice? What is it about bloodletting that's so deeply woven into the Christian, the Judeo-Christian story? So that drives me back into the Hebrew Bible and all these conversations with my rabbi friend who, who I spent a lot of time talking with about the book, particularly about that, those parts of the book. And I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to uh, skirt the violence on the cross. I want to, I want to dive in there and say, well, like, what's this about? And what it is about, I think in the end is not about some cosmic transaction. I think it's about God's, willingness to enter into the most fundamental of human experience mm. and that is violence and death like that's it there that, that's something that god did not need to experience god should never in some ways should never have experienced and yet what's more like essential to the human condition than violence nothing well, yeah well and, mm. and we you know because everything's so sanitized I mean, birth is a very bloody, violent event. Right. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the prayers of Anselm, St. Anselm of Canterbury, because mm-hmm. I think he offers a kind of an, a different, there's a different atonement theory, I think, in that. And, you know, in his prayer to St. Paul, he talks about Christ being our mother on the cross. And for him, he kind of merges both the death imagery, but with 
you know, mm-hmm. in his blood, we're born. And I, you know, for me, I mean, most death is sanitized, but I've been around some very horrible deaths. Um, yeah. Some really hard deaths um, as well. I've been around births. And there, there seems to me, you know, <laughs> mentioning C.S. Lewis, you know, the deeper magic uh, may not be so much an innocent victim, but that um, that a lot of life itself is tied up into the blood. I mean, I think to me, you know, Charles Williams wrote a wonderful book that a lot of people don't are aware of on on that. And he ties all the blood stuff together mm-hmm. with this idea of life and mm-hmm. living and sacrifice. And uh, and in some levels, to me, um, um I think the crucifixion, in a lot of ways, is Paul for in Paul is, is working from the resurrection back. Mm-hmm. Okay, in other words, what has God actually conquered in Christ? And then, to me, it's in that revelation that that the cross suddenly has has a different kind of meaning that He has to work through. And and it seems to me, in some levels too, that uh, the death of Christ in the midst of our bloody lives um, offers a unique, and mysterious solidarity. And and you know. You uh, echo the biblical authors who come up with love as the reason for mm-hmm. all of that. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that about what you've said. Yeah, I, I think you're right that death is sanitized. Um, but, man, you know, I, I, I was a police chaplain for 10 years and I saw some right. gruesome stuff. Right. And I know that... Um, you know, cops see that. My brother was an emergency room surgeon for many years. He just, the stories he would tell me, you know, the human body is really fragile. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you put, you put a shotgun in the mouth or you drive a car at 70 miles an hour into a ditch. Mm. Um, I mean, there's just <laughs> what happens to the human body, you know, and those of us in pastoral ministry, we, we run into it. And, right. And then, just everybody runs into it eventually, even even as much as like death is kind of sanitized in our culture and 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 marginalized, and we we don't see a lot of it. In the end, we all it, it happens to all of us, and we we come across the fragility of the human mm-hmm. body, and for like for God to enter into that and experience that fragility, I think is just like. That's the gospel to me. Mm. That's the gospel that God would enter into that fragility to the point of having like flesh torn, bones broken, blood poured out. Mm. Um, it, it, to me, that's a much more intimate atonement than that there was some mathematical equation that was like missing uh, uh, an integer and Jesus was that like, you know, Jesus was put in the final piece of the equation so equals salvation that's so for i mean it's called the forensic like the penal substitution view is called a forensic view of the atonement and that's it's that very kind of clinical forensic view that i find not beautiful not romantic not mysterious it's not like the penal substitutionary view of the atonement is going to like um is going to inspire the next shakespeare you know or something (laughs) like that it's not that's a good it's a good point okay that leads into my and my next question, maybe uh, we could wrap up soon, but and this is maybe back to the practical theologian in you. So a lot of people, right, you've heard tons of illustrations, probably youth talks, sermons, where people look to fiction, uh, film, television for pictures of atonement. Like people that are 
into the Christus Victor or the Ransom Theory, you know, it's Neo at the at the end of the Matrix, <laughs> yeah. right? Where where, it, where he kind of becomes Lord of the Matrix after he beats Seth. Or some people, you said, uh, Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe. We see a ransom picture. Some people would even say it's a substitution picture. People could parse that, but there's a picture that people look to, or you know, Tale of Two Cities or Wrath of Khan. You could look at kind of the the Abelard, the magnet love drawing. Yeah. Now, what would be your like evocative pop culture or film or literature picture of choice for the picture you paint? In oh my God! God kill Jesus! You've sprung that one on me. That's a tough one. Let. Let me first say before that, that one you didn't mention is Rene Girard. And I think there are people, my experience is, uh, and this has happened to me a little bit too, is once you read Girard, you see scapegoating everywhere. Uh, right, uh, that's a great point. That's a great point. Like scapegoating yeah. is under every rock. It's in every film. It's in every news story. Right. You know, um, and, and you can go to different like if you go to the blog of the of the raven foundation on pathios um uh those two bloggers man they're i mean in some ways you might be like come on it's it's under really under every rock but then you 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 know they just are like like here's scapegoating in the latest young adult novel like here's scapegoating in in the presidential press conference last week here's scapegoating in the trump campaign here's like there's right it's pretty fascinating and this is, I think, why Girard is getting such a wide reading in theological mm. circles is because uh, you really do see the power of that framework. Right. Um, oh, my gosh. I'm going to have to think about that. Uh, the pop culture reference for my my particular, you know, what I like to consider as my semi original contribution to this conversation, which is that God, uh, you know, God abdicated some omnipotence and timelessness in order to really dive into time and the human story to experience it with us. Um, I don't have a great answer for you. You probably do. Do you have a good one for me? I don't. Do think I don't, but I'll think about it. I, I, I'll, I'll think about it. No, that's good. That's a great question. I should probably um, have like a ready answer for that. There must be some. Maybe you need to just stop reading books and praying so much and watch more television. Exactly. Yeah, that, that would be exactly. Good. You know, one of the things I want to, you know, I want to thank you for it. Uh, I think one of the contributions of what you've done here is to remind us that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, as the Apostle Paul says, that God wasn't outside of Christ in the whole process. And I appreciate that very much. Well, I would think that for, for you guys both and, um, you know, the... Some versions of the atonement can really mess up the Trinity, like no. leave the Trinity in shreds. And you just think, how can God, how can God be pitted against Jesus? It, it makes, it doesn't make any philosophical sense, much less biblical sense. Yeah. You know? yeah. And I would think Bardians, right? That would be a major problem for. Yeah. And I think, I think one of the things that is interesting, the kind of point that, that God loves us and that's, why he meets us in the death of Christ. What's interesting to me is I wonder if you couldn't go back and reimagine some picture of substitution with that in mind. Like, I think if, I wonder if you, if you flip it and we don't have this, well, God can't, yeah. God can't look at us until Jesus died, then he can love us. I wonder if you, if you, if, if you take some of your best insights, if this could be, maybe, maybe if people will uh, 
think more carefully about some traditional models and, and benefit from what you've laid yeah, out. Yeah, like I think Miroslav Volf, for instance, has, has tried to develop a more, um, like a more sensitive, progressive view of substitution. So he's kind of been like, it's not penal, but it's still substitution. Yeah. And I, I footnote that somewhere in the, or endnote that somewhere in the book where he, he writes that. So I don't, um, I'm not trying to like erase substitution off the map by any means, because clearly it's there in Paul and it's been very important to a lot of people for a long time, but it's just, just too dominant and it's not the whole story. Yeah. Well, Tony, I appreciate you trying to bring some balance to theological discourse yeah. around the work of Christ. Thanks. Thank yeah. It was, a, it was a really fun project. And thanks for taking time to have a conversation yeah. with us. And everybody, all uh, anyone that's listening, get the book. Did God Kill Jesus? Thanks, it's man. published by HarperCollins. Harper right? One, yeah. Harper One. So get the book. It's on Kindle, and it's uh, in bookstores near you. Thanks.